It's our privilege this morning to turn back in the study of God's Word to Romans chapter 9, and we are rejoicing in this incredibly rich passage. I'm thankful for this study, and I'm thankful for you. I know that many uh, my, these are rich truths that you have embraced for many seasons, but I know for some of you these are new ideas, and I know even some are visiting right now just to hear what we would say about these ideas, and so I am thankful for your presence, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to open up this incredible text for you. And I understand that there may be differences of views and differences of understanding, and in the process, as we work through texts like this, these texts test us. They reveal our heart. They reveal what we believe. They reveal by what authority we land on certain ideas. We get tested in seasons like this when we come to texts that challenge us and challenge our convictions. And what comes out is what we rely upon to give us understanding. Some of us rely on our reasoning. Some of us rely on our experiences. Some of us rely on our emotions. Some of us rely on our traditions. There are different things that we turn to to give us comfort as we are trying to wrap our arms around what God has revealed about himself and his word. And that's what brings differences. That's why one would land in one area and someone would see something else. And because we hold to different authorities by which come to the meaning of the text. And it's been common in our ministry to go to the Word of God, to let the Word of God speak, to draw out the details that we would understand the mind of God as He has revealed Himself through the human author. We're trying to know what God has said plainly so that we can then understand our God and ourselves better. Now again, as I, this is this section here, as we head into these themes in Romans 9 through 11, the rich theological depths here, I know I'm just touching on some soft spots for individuals because it's pressing them. In fact, it was just uh, last week, someone came up to me after the service and said, okay, so what I hear you saying is this, that God has predestined people Predestine them to heaven or predestine them to condemnation? I said, well, you're hearing me, but I did not say both. I said that God saves, God chooses. He is electing unto salvation for sure. For as Romans 9.18 says, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Romans 9.16 so it doesn't depend on the man who wills but on the, or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. The text is clear and God's purposes is his directing. And while I never used the word predestination until this sermon, the implications are very obvious from the text. It is, as we are pointing out, the elephant in the room, which you're hearing me talk about and you clearly recognize it is there because the text starts to unfold these rich details. And that's what we want to begin to, to keep understanding this morning as we work our way through this text. Because what we see here is that God is sovereign. God is directing according to his good purposes. He is accomplishing his will. He is saving. And his word is clear in making this known. 
And it starts to raise up all kinds of questions in our heart. Well, if he is sovereign, then how is this fair? And that's what we're going to look at this morning in verses 19 through 29. Well, if he's sovereign, then what about free will? And we will answer the question about free will, but that's in chapter 10. We'll answer them in order as they were brought out from the text. But we'll ask about how can he be sovereign? How can he elect? And then also, we have a free will. We'll answer those questions for you. One question at, our time, at a time. Our objective here, again, is to understand what Paul is saying about God, what he is, how he is defending the gospel, and the significance of God's work in salvation, because all of that is unfolded in these three chapters, 9, 10, 11. God's marvelous work in salvation. And it's clear that our ministry lands on a high view of God. It is the first principle in our philosophy of ministry statement. We are committed to a high view of God, exalting God. That's, that's evident. We have been known as that ministry from the beginning of our church's history. In fact, it is in our name, Saving Grace Bible Church. We've shown everybody our cards from day one. We emphasize a high view of God and his saving activity. In fact, his active saving activity. For, as Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, we are, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not the result of works that no one should boast. We emphasize God's active work in salvation. And it has been part of our ministry from the very beginning. Now, I remember early on in our ministry life, there was a particular Sunday that I was doing a wedding. And in fact, it was a wedding that was at a beach. And during the uh, wedding, after the ceremony, but before the reception, there, there was a group of uh, students studying the scriptures from another ministry, and they saw me between ministries, or between services waiting, and they came over and they said, will you come and lead our Bible study as you wait for the reception? So I walked over and did an impromptu Bible study there with this group of teenagers and college-age students, again, from another ministry, and I picked the topic of the sovereignty of God and salvation. I did that because one of those youth, the one who recognized me, was regularly coming and asking questions about this doctrine, so I just figured, you asked, I will give it to you, and... Uh, we walked through a study on the sovereignty of God, and we walked through the teaching of the Apostle John, and it, it probably was out of 1 John, because that's where I was studying at the time. I believe it was 1 John 4, but it could have been from John chapter 6 or John chapter 10 or any other places that John emphasized this work. But I remember walking the students through the study uh, for 15, 20 minutes. We walked through some passages and as soon as I finished, I closed up. They were intently listening the whole time. The very first question that poured out of their mouths was this, are you saying that God predestines to salvation? Yes. Well, how is that fair? And how does that work with free will? And how can God save some and not others? And at least there was one young man in that group who was highly agitated by the 
whole presentation. But as that group wrestled with that particular doctrine, it reminded me again, this is the normal struggle to come up against God's word and to wrestle with these things. I rejoice in that season because some of those youth are actually in our ministry today. Some were part of that Bible study. And what I recognize in the midst of that study is this, that there are times when we come to the Word of God and we hear uncomfortable things for us. And it's in those moments when these things are uncomfortable, we've got to go back to the Scripture and say, all right, what are the details? What is it that the Word of God is actually saying? And I don't rejoice in making things uncomfortable for you, but I do rejoice in the ministry of the Word of God when it does make us uncomfortable with ourselves, with our with our perspectives. I rejoice that God shapes our hearts and directs us. And it isn't my purpose this morning to pretend or to protect some systematic theology or some doctrine out there. It is my desire to protect and unfold what the scriptures say. So if you say to me, well, you're just following John Calvin or John MacArthur or John Piper, well, they can defend themselves. They're capable men. They've done very well in their years of ministry. They can all defend themselves. I'm not here to defend R.C. Sproul or J.C. Ryle or any other who may have held similar views. I am simply here to unfold what the master of the church has spoken to his church. And that is what we must be wrestling for. What is it that the master or head of the church has said to the church? That's what we must seek to understand. Because in that, then we find the message of God. And in that, we find where God would be directing us so that we would be edified and built up. So I want to reply to some arguments that you may have heard over the years against what we have been teaching here in Romans chapters 9 through 11. And particularly, I want to reply to the arguments of John Wesley. Because you may have heard Wesley's arguments. John Wesley was born in 1703, and he died in 1791. Had a rich life of 88 years. He taught the doctrines of the Remonstrances, or otherwise known as the doctrines of Arminianism. He was an English cleric and a theologian, and, and he oftentimes would be an open-air evangelist out preaching And when he came to this particular passage, this is where he wrestles in Romans 9 through 11, and he he struggles with this particular passage. And he has two main arguments against the views that we have been presenting thus far through our study. And his two arguments are these. First, the text here, Romans 9 through 11, is not about individual election, it's about corporate election. He says this is about God's choosing of Israel corporately, not the individual choosing. And then his second argument, the sovereignty view presents God as unfair and inequitable. So those are the two arguments that John Wesley presents that you may have heard. Well, it's not about individual election. Let's deal with that argument first. The corporate versus individual election. What kind of election is being emphasized here in Romans 9? Romans chapter 9. Again, as he emphasizes, it's about corporate, he says. Wesleyans, and you may have heard 
people talk like this. That it's about the choosing of the nation. And, and what verses would he emphasize that? Well, just notice the, the terms, like in verse 4. Who are Israelites? Now we're speaking of the whole nation of Israelites. Down in verse 30 and 31, the contrast between the Gentiles and in verse 31, but Israel, the nation, you have over in chapter 11, or yeah, chapter 11 again, um, he's speaking of his uh, people in verses 1 and 2, particularly at the end of the verse 2, how he pleads with God against Israel, the whole nation. The idea here is that God has selected the nation. That's what his election was. It was on the whole nation. It wasn't individuals. You go back also to, to uh, verses 11 through 12 of chapter 9. that You see the fact at the end of verse 12 there. It says, It was said to her, The older will serve the younger. That verse that's quoted, that verse is Genesis chapter 25 and verse 23. And listen to how that whole verse goes. And this is God speaking to Rebecca. Rebecca, who has now with, chi- with child, and she actually has twins, and says this, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. The whole verse emphasizes the corporate aspect of these two boys, Jacob and Esau, two boys who would ultimately be the fathers of nations. So, the idea is, This must be teaching not individual election by God, but corporate election by God. That's the argument. I trust that I have presented the argument clearly. I've shown you textual evidences that nobody from Wesley's side could say, ah, you misrepresented our view in any way. So how would I answer that? Well, let me give you, first of all, an answer to this by affirming our where we are in agreement, all right? So there are some agreements. First of all, I do agree that God is speak, uh, Paul here is ministering to the collective nation Israel, the big group, certainly. He has said that from chapter 1, that the gospel comes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And clearly he is speaking to the whole nation in chapter 2 when he says in chapter 2, verse 17, if you bear the name Jew, In chapter 3, verse 1, what advantage has the Jew? In chapter 4, referring to the Old Testament, for the Jews' sake, demonstrating the riches of the gospel. In chapter 7 and verse 1, I'm speaking to those who know the law. He's speaking to Jews collectively as a whole, the whole nation. Certainly, we're in agreement on that, that he is speaking in his audience to the full nation. But, and also... Our second area of agreement is this. It's talking about election. I agree. It's talking about election. I agree. Both of us, we're talking about election. The difference is to what extent is that election, but we're both emphasizing election. Whether election is on the nation or election is on the individual, both sides are talking about God's choosing. We're in agreement here. 
So we're not arguing whether or not God chooses. We're just talking about the extent in which he chooses. That is the question at hand. So we are both in agreement in that, there, that God is choosing. Both in agreement that God is working among Israel. We're both in agreement that God is choosing. That is the level of agreement that we have. So that now the wrestling matches over what is the extent of God's choosing. What is, his, what is God saying about whom he chooses? And there are many passages we say Romans 9 is one of those that you go to. But you can again, you can go to John chapter 6 or John chapter 10 or John chapter 17 or Ephesians 1 or Colossians 1, 13 and 15 or 1 Timothy 4.10, or Titus 2 and 3. And you can see in all of those passages, all those sections, God's particular work among his people. So now, where do we differ? And here's the differences for us, just to point out. First of all, the confusion that God chooses to save the whole nation and not individuals within the nation is the cause for the injustice that Paul answers in verses 1 through 6. The very question brought up, the very confusion that the Israelites had is what Paul brings out in verses 1 through 6. When he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on and he talks about his great love for the brethren, his great love for the Jews, for the collective Jews, for the whole nation. The collective group in verses 1 through 5, and he gives all of these evidences of, of what they're about, right? They have in verse 4, in whom there, is a, there are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons. He's again speaking all in the corporate terms. Then in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended for Israel. See, his answer is to distinguish between the corporate and the individual. He points out the particular individual, the redeemed individual. That is the answer to the dilemma. To say this dif- differently, the Wesleyan view that all Paul is concerned about is the corporate burden, the corporate group, that's all that God is electing and choosing, is the cause of the problem. Paul gives the answer, no, he saves individuals out of that group. So that's the first answer back to the question. But the second answer would be this, that it is natural to be able to separate out individuals in a corporate identity. So what do you mean by that? Well, just think about the various examples that God gives us. You have one body, the church, and yet it's made up of individual parts. Hands, eyes, feet, etc., mouth, head. One body, the whole church, and yet identified by the individual parts. You, you cannot separate. They are, they are distinguished, and yet they are part of a whole. Same thing in marriage. You have a husband and a wife. Together they are one flesh, and yet they are distinct, separate. You can identify them with their particular roles and responsibilities, and yet they are in a unity, a whole. So in the same sense, this is the same thing recognized. You have, as verse 6 says of, of Romans chapter 9, 
It's not as where the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. While they are all part, the Jews from the nation of Israel, there is a distinct remnant, a distinct separated group. Just like in marriage, while the two are one flesh, there are two distinct individuals within the marriage. But thirdly, even in our text, illustrated here, say what would Paul's argument is Paul illustrates the answer, illustrates God's choosing by individuals. Notice, again, we saw this in verses 6 through verse 14. The individuals, Isaac over Ishmael, or Jacob over Esau, or the particular choosing of Pharaoh. These are individuals, and Paul uses individuals to make his case. But fourthly, let's look at that Genesis passage. Turn over to Genesis 25 because I would also answer to the Wesleyan in regards to God's work. So we have to give an answer to what is happening here in Genesis 25 and verse 23. God is speaking to Rebecca, saying to Rebecca what is going to take place. He says to her again, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples will be separated from your body, and the one shall be stronger than the other, and the other shall serve the younger. Here's what you need to understand. In the Abrahamic covenant, there were universal promises and particular promises. There are universal promises and particular promises. I think that's what's laid out here in the verses. First of all, the universal promises. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. There's the universal. Where's the proof of the universal promise? Turn back to chapter 17. I'll show you. Chapter 17, verse 3 through 6. Notice what God said to Abraham there. Genesis 17, 3 through 6. This is God coming to Abram and making a covenant with Abram, demonstrating his glory among him. It says in there in verse 1, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Verse 2, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Verse 3, Abraham fell on his face and talked with him, and God talked with him saying, now here's God's words, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And what is that covenant? Second half of verse 4. You will be the father of a, notice, a multitude of nations. Not one nation, Israel, but many nations you will be the father of. Verse 5. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For notice, for I will multiply, or I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. He is, again, emphasizing what he is going to do with Abraham. He is going to make Abraham the father of many nations, plural. There is a universal aspect to God's covenant with Abraham. But there is also a particular aspect. Turn back two more chapters to chapter 15. This is now about 10 years 
since Abram has first heard of the promise from God. He is now about the age of 85, 86, and he has heard he's going to hear this command again or this promise again from God. In verse 5 of chapter 15, it says, He took him outside and he said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. I'm going to make your descendants as high, as many as the stars in the heaven. What exactly? He's now is talking not about nations, but particularly his descendants. Well, you may think, well, that could still be the nations. All the nations would be related to him. Turn over to chapter 18. He clarifies this particular promise more. Chapter 18, and now this is Abraham at the age of 99. In chapter 18, in verse 10 and verse 14, says this. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door. Jump down to verse 14. Again, they are... Surprised by this at the age of 99, how is this possible that we will have a son and they are uh, pressing God? And then verse 14, is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. And at this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Here is now the particular aspect of God's covenant. Not just fulfill the universal aspect, I'll make you the father of many nations, but even the particular aspect, I will make you the father of Isaac. Sarah will have a son. You will have descendants. So the point is, in the midst of this, you cannot just separate and say, there's no relationship to the universal group. It's all universal. There's no, or, yeah, it's all universal, no relationship to the individual, and vice versa. There was promises that extended beyond the individual to the corporate. They're not separate. They're together. Just as in God's working here, he made a promise to Abraham, not only to make him the father of many nations, but also to make him the father of a particular nation, the nation of Israel. So we can't just highlight one particular aspect of God's choosing here for both are part of his covenant plan. All right, turn back to Romans chapter 9 then. That is the answer to the first question. Is it about a corporate identity or the individual God's choosing? And the answer is yes, it's both. He is choosing particular individuals and he has chosen a particular nation. He's working through both. And clearly, that was Paul's answer in verse 6. It is not as, with, as if the word of God had failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Well, what about the other question then? It's unfair. The inequity question. If, if God's sovereign, if God's choosing, there's an unfairness in God. Does the doctrine of election or predestination make God a liar? Does it it mean that God, because he loved Jacob but hated Esau, does it now make God evil towards Esau? Does it take away the love of God towards the non-elect? Here's Wesley's words, his own words on this. He says, this is the blasphemy 
clearly contained in the horrible decree of predestination. And here I fix my foot. On this I join issue with every asserter of it. You represent God as worse than the devil, more false, more cruel, more unjust. But you say you will prove it by the scriptures. Hold. Will you prove by the scripture that God is worse than the devil? It cannot be. Whatever that scriptures prove, it never can prove this. Whatever its true meaning be, this cannot be its true meaning. Do you ask, what is its true meaning then? I say, I don't know. You have gained nothing. For there are many scriptures that the true sense whereof neither you nor I shall know till death is swallowed up in victory. But I know this. Better it were to say it had no sense than to say it had such a sense as this. It cannot mean whatever it means besides that God of truth is a liar. Let it mean what it will, but it cannot mean that the judge of all the world is unjust. No scripture can mean that God is not love or that his mercy is not over all his works. That is, Whatever it prove besides, no scripture can prove predestination. Wesley reveals exactly where he is at in his understanding here. Whatever Paul meant, whatever he said there, doesn't mean what you think it means. And you would ask him, so what does it mean, Wesley? I don't know. And I'd rather not knowing at all than understanding what it actually says there. Well, again, I would argue in this sense, that's just a pejorative argument. There is no objective argument there other than to say, I don't like your view. And your view makes God a liar. And your view makes God a devil. And so I don't like your view because it makes God mean. And I have a God who loves and a God who's merciful. And so I just don't know what the passage means. I don't have an answer to it, but I know it doesn't mean that. That could possibly be an answer, but here's the point. Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote something down. And something of a meaning here. And when he brings up the very question in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who will resist his will? Is not that the very question that you're asking, Mr. Wesley? And isn't Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit, giving a very answer to your question? And I would say yes. He's absolutely answering the question. All right, so what is the answer? Well, we've got a few minutes left. Let me just give you an introduction. We won't even get to the answers, really. We'll just give you his problem and the answer, and then I'll prove it in the weeks to come. So let's look at the problem and the answer. From verse 19 through 29, here's how the outline goes to the whole text. Verse 19 is the problem. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If he's sovereign, if he's electing, if he's choosing, if he's predestinating, if he's the one directing all these things, then why is the sinner held guilty? How can Pharaoh still be held guilty? How could the rebellious still be held guilty? That's the very question that he's going to answer. He gives the answer in verse 20. And then he gives the proofs. 
From verse 21 through verse 29, he gives three proofs to this particular problem. Three proofs that would help us understand exactly what he is trying to say in this text. The proofs are these, first of all, of God's justice. God acts justly and demonstrates his marvelous justice in all that he does. And the second proof is God's glory. He always operates according to his glory. And then the third proof is the Old Testament witness. He has declared this from the prophets, that each of the prophets have declared. In verse uh, 25 through verse 29, he then quotes multiple Old Testament prophets demonstrating this is what God said he was going to do. So it is the defense of his justice, the defense of his glory, and the defense of the Old Testament witnesses all prove to God being able to operate in this particular way. That's going to be our outline. Now let us work through this text. The problem of fairness, verse 19. Again, in the Wesleyan logic, it's something like this. If this just makes God a liar... It makes God even worse than the devil to have the idea that God is in control and that he's choosing one and that he's raising up Pharaoh to harden Pharaoh and he is uh, choosing Jacob over Esau or Isaac over Ishmael. The fact that God would be doing that makes God a devil. Worse than the devil, in fact, because he's not loving one particular group. That's not the kind of God I could worship. It's not the kind of God that is true, he would say in his own reasoning. Again, I'd say that is exactly the concern that Paul's anticipating in verse 19 when he is bringing out the question, why does he still find fault? But let me point out here, at least Paul had enough, or at least Paul's, let's put it this way, Paul's protagonist, the imagined debater that he is going against, had enough sensibility to not call God's character into question. I mean, if Wesley is standing here, and if he's going to stand and make a defense, he is saying of God, God, you're a liar for presenting yourself this way. He better hope that Paul was misrepresenting God. Otherwise, he is impugning the character of God. Saying of God, you're a liar, God. You're a devil. You're misrepresenting. He better hope the apostle Paul got it wrong. Because otherwise... He's appealing the character of God. Paul here, on the other hand, imagining the, the debater's response doesn't impugn the character of God. He just brings up the tension. Where's the fault going to come from? Who's at fault? Is God at fault in this? How are we going to understand? And then he gives the answer. And I'd say the first lesson we should learn in the midst of this, when we're coming against hard theological truths that our minds struggle with, let's be careful with our words not to put God on the stand. God isn't the one on the stand. And we use kind of pejorative arguments to misrepresent a view, and none of that's helpful. I mean, if I argued in such a way, and you've never heard me argue this way about a view that I disagreed with, saying of the other person, oh, if you held that view, the elevator doesn't go to the top floor. Ah, if you held that view, that view comes from somebody who found their degree in a crackerjack box. 
You know, the kind of pejorative arguments that come to try to discredit the other side because you don't want anyone to really embrace the other side. That's not how we wrestle through these things. These are real questions with real concerns, with real implications, really difficult to understand, and we have to bring our mind under those understandings so that we would know the mind of God. So what is the answer? Well, here's where Paul takes us. Verse 20, the answer. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me this way, will it? That's the answer to the question. Who are we to say to God, you're under judgment? That what you've done is not fair. Of this, by the way, just by another proof, this is about individual election, not corporate election. Is just notice the the uh, tenses there in verse nineteen, or notice the personal pronouns there, nineteen and twenty. Who resists his will? If he's speaking of corporate identity, it'd be which nation resists his will. And then verse twenty, modifying, on the contrary, who are you? O nation who answers back to God? If he's thinking in his mind of a corporate nation and identity, that's who he's saying? No, it's the individual. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? It's another emphasis that Paul is speaking of God's particular choice. But who are you to answer back to God? The answer that Paul gives to the dilemma that comes up in our minds that wrestle over God's fairness or seeming inequity is this, which one of us has the right to stand up over God and bring him under judgment? And think about this. Paul's answer is basically this. There's four aspects to his answer I want to give you. The first is this. Is it too hard for you to see God's ability as creator? Is it too hard for you to recognize the God who can create all the heavens and the earth, the God who can create everything you see around, everything that every discipline out there in the academic field is trying to grasp and recognize? God creates that instantaneously over six days, and he takes six days to demonstrate the riches of his glory. It's not because he needed time. Demonstrated took six days so as to show us every aspect of what he is accomplishing. Is it too hard to see that God has the ability to do these things? Is it too hard to see that God can accomplish these things and not violate his creation or himself? Is that too hard for you to grasp that God is capable of accomplishing everything he wants to accomplish without violating himself or his creation? Is it too hard? And secondly, is it too hard to see that God is righteous? That God is just. That he can do as he pleases with his creation. Right? That's the whole idea in verse 21. Does the potter not have the right over the clay? Does the potter not have a right to do what he wills when he is crafting what he desires? Doesn't he have the right? Does God not have the right to be God? Does he need our approval to be God? Do we have to grant it to him? Do we have to go out and say to God, well, now today, God, you get to be God in this area, but then we're going to take it back when it's uncomfortable for us. 
No, he is God all the time. He is right all the time, and he can do what he pleases all the time because he is God. And thirdly, is it too hard to see our weaknesses? I mean, here, as he says in verse 20, on the contrary, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, will you make me, why did you make me like this? I mean, we are the clay here. The idea is the clay and the potter, and we are the clay. We are weak. We are creation. We are, we have weaknesses. Is it too hard to see our weaknesses, to see our frailties, to see our that we are in subjection, that we are not autonomous rulers over ourselves. I mean, this, it should have been natural for us. You didn't even ask to come into this world. You were brought into this world by the act of someone else. We live our whole life under subjection. As much as we try to fight against it, we're always under subjection. We should recognize our weakness here. Fourthly, Paul's argument is, is it too hard for you to see yourself dependent upon God? Is it too hard to see your regular dependence? Notice in the, second, the um, end of verse 20, will not say, the thing molded, will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? We're dependent. Dependent on his activity, on his working, on his doing. So that that is the answer to the dilemma of is God at fault or how can he find fault in anything that, that, that he hasn't chosen? How can he find fault in Pharaoh? How can he find fault in Esau? How can he find fault in his creation? Do you recognize that the creation is entirely dependent upon the creator? God is God. That is the answer that Paul gives and then he defends that answer. And that's what we'll look at next time, the defense of that answer. And as I said, we'll defend it from his justice, from the standpoint of his glory, and from the standpoint of the Old Testament prophets. But here's the question in hand. It is, why are these things so hard for us to understand at times? I think two answers I want to give you. First, Pastor Jerry Ragged emphasize some presumptions we make when we come to the text. Here's what he says. Oftentimes we struggle because we presume our questions must be answered. We presume that God has to answer all the questions for us so that we then struggle to understand what he is saying or doing in his word because God has to answer our questions. And we also presume that our logic is sound and he must answer to our logic. That is our reasoning, our understanding of a particular situation that is sound, is unassailable, it's right, and therefore God must give an answer to it. And thirdly, we presume that our reasoning is more coherent, meaning our reasoning and understanding is without flaw in this situation, and therefore, again, God owes us an answer. Fourthly, we presume that our answers to be to biblical paradoxes are better argued, meaning there are particular tensions in the Scriptures, paradoxes, seem, things that seem hard to reconcile or understand, and that our answers are sufficient. We can answer sovereignty and free will. We can answer 
You know, how God can be eternal and outside time and enter into time. We can answer all those paradoxes and difficulties, how Christ can be fully God and fully man. We'll give all the answers to those things. And then fifthly, we presume that our conclusions are more truthful and thus more weighty than what God has said. That is exactly what Wesley is doing when he comes to Romans 9 and says, I don't like that answer. I don't know what else could be said, but that can't be it. You presume you know more than God. Because it's not that Wesley is confronting John Calvin or John MacArthur or John Piper or Mark Ragg or any other pastor. He is confronting the Apostle Paul, influenced and moved by the Holy Spirit. Man moved by God, writing God's very word, he's saying that's not right. Well, then you're arguing, Mr. Wesley, not against man, but against God. And that is our struggle when we're wrestling with the scriptures, is wrestling with God's very word. What is he saying? One more account, and we'll close with this. It's Luther's word to Erasmus. Luther, interacting with Erasmus over these very ideas, said this. He said, mere human reason can never comprehend how good or how God is good and merciful. And therefore, you make to yourself a God of your own fancy who hardens nobody, contemns nobody, and pities everybody. So we're saying to Erasmus, here's the God you present because you can't, can't comprehend how God is good and merciful. You, you go about demonstrating that nobody is condemned by God and nobody is hardened by God and everybody receives pity from God, he says. He goes on. You cannot comprehend how a just God can condemn those who are born in sin and cannot help themselves but must by a necessity of their natural constitution continue in sin and remain children of wrath. The answer is God is incomprehensible throughout, and therefore his justice, as well as his other attributes, must be incomprehensible. It is on this very ground that St. Paul exclaims, Oh, the depths of the riches of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And then Luther says, Now... His judgments would not be past finding out if we could always perceive them to be just. This is it. These difficulties for us when we come to the text, we can always see exactly what God is doing. We always richly understood that we were bringing God down to our level. As for us, We know God is truthful. We know God cannot lie. We know he is not misleading us. And we know that his testimonies are understandable for what he has revealed to us clearly reveals who he is. And we can know him. And so when we come to his scriptures, we come not as judge over God, but we come as servants to learn from the Most High himself of what he is accomplishing. And what we know is that God is fair and just in all of his dealings. And we marvel at the mercy and grace that God would show any of us to bring us to salvation in Christ.
Next time we gather, we'll pick up on then defending that particular argument. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you for these rich, rich ideas. We are profoundly impacted by your truth. For indeed, we are stunned that you would set your love on any of us, for we see our own hearts, we know our own rebellion, we know our own hostility, we know our own natural reasoning and understanding, and yet it is by your marvelous grace that we are rescued, our hearts are changed, that our minds are sanctified by your word and we're renewed. We do pray and we recognize that it is hard for us to bring our hearts and minds under your word. We are naturally proud and self-sufficient. We are naturally looking to our own reasoning and understanding. We pray that we would, in great faith, yield our heart and yield our will to the truth, that we would learn to come up under your word, comforted by the riches of your truth. Certainly we rejoice most that our The God in which we worship is greater than we are, able to accomplish all these good things, not violating your character or your creation. You are able to accomplish everything that you have determined. For indeed, that comforts our heart then when we see uh, chaos around us, when we see distress, when we see evil flourishing, when we experience suffering, all that's happening around us. We are not hopeless and in despair. No, in fact, we know that your good hand is moving and directing So that even in our sorrows and in our suffering and in our difficulty, great light shines out of deep darkness because you are marvelously directing and accomplishing your goodwill. So may we always see your justice. May we always delight in your glory. And may we be built up and affirmed by the riches of your testimony so that your people are strengthened by your word. Minister to us from your truth. Thank you for this time together. In your name we pray. Amen.